following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning, everyone. I like to hear that. Thank you. Uh, Let's turn our Bibles, please, to a new book for us to read this morning, and that is the prophet Ezekiel. I decided to mix and match our reading in the morning and evening again for a little bit because uh, 1 Chronicles, which we started reading last Sunday uh, evening, I think, we uh, found that uh, there are a lot of difficulties there with the pronunciation, as some people say the pronunciation, uh, of uh, those names there, and there are nine chapters of genealogies and, and like information. So. I'd like to uh, mix it up here and and look at Ezekiel for a little bit in the morning uh, services when we read. We really only have a few books of the Bible left in our journey through Scripture together, and uh, this is one of them, one of the longest uh, books in the whole Scripture. Ezekiel chapter 1. Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Kibar, that the heavens were opened And I saw visions of God. Very rare event in world history for this to happen. Only a few times has it happened. We've got some recorded in Scripture. Uh, Ezekiel was taken captive in 597 B.C. to Babylon uh, from Israel in the second deportation of three. And so that's where we find him over that way to the east of the land of Israel. On the fifth day of the month, which was in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of Chaldeans by the river Kibar, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Now remember... When you read this, you say, what is all this? It's a vision of what? The first verse told us. It's a vision of God, right? I saw visions of God. And so we have to keep that in mind as we go through this, that he's trying to explain something that is almost inexplicable. How do you explain when you see God? Revelation, and the book of Revelation has some of that in it, but it's very difficult to explain the manifestation that you see of an altogether out of this world being God. Uh, verse, uh, f- let's see, very, uh, verse 5. Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. The hands of a man were under their wings, on their four sides, and each of the four had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side. Each of the four had a face of an ox on the left side, and each of the four had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces. Their wings stretched upward, two wings of each one touched one another, and two covered their bodies. And each one went straight forward. They went wherever the Spirit wanted to go, and they did not turn 
when they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright, and out of the fire went lightning. And the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. The appearance of the wheels and their workings was like the color of beryl, and all four had the same likeness. The appearance of their workings was, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but can you imagine a gyroscope where you have the outer wheel and the inner wheel, something like that perhaps? When they moved, they went toward any one of the four directions. They did not turn aside when they went. As for their rims, they were so high, they were awesome. And their rims were full of eyes all around, the four of them. When the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, because there the Spirit went, and the wheels were lifted together with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went. When those stood, these stood. When those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up together with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. The likeness of the firmament above the heads of the living creatures was like the color of an awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. And under the firmament, their wings spread out straight, one toward another. Each one had two which covered one side. Each one had two which covered the other side of the body. When they went, I heard the noise of their wings like the noise of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult, like the noise of an army. And when they stood still, they let down their wings. A voice came from above the firmament that was over their heads. Whenever they stood, they let down their wings. And above the firmament, over their heads, was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of a throne was the likeness with the appearance of a man high above it, now the appearance of God. We have seen these, these beings that he's described before. We see also in the book of Revelation, which would be angelic creations, uh, guarding the holiness of God and going with him. Also, from the appearance of his waist and upward, I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around, like the appearance of a rainbow, in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So he summarizes it all up for us. We can see this is what it's all about. It's a vision of God that he is sharing with us. That, my friends, is one description of the God with whom we have to do. Don't treat him lightly. He is a glorious creation. He is a glorious being who created all of us, and we are his creatures. We're continuing our series in the book of Titus. What we're trying to accomplish, if you're new to us here, new to the church, is to complete a systematic study of the book of Titus, as we often do in what is called serial expositional preaching. So, Expositional preaching is a way of explaining and applying a text of the Bible so that you understand and obey it 
So I do uh, what I can do the best I can to explain and apply, and you do the best you can to understand and obey. And then we do that again next week with the next portion of the book that we're in, and we do that the following week with the next portion of the book, and so on until we complete that text uh, in Titus in this example, and then we move on to another one. Now, in Titus chapter 1, the Apostle Paul has given Titus the task, the assignment, to set in order churches that were lacking elders and other uh, necessary parts to their proper function. That's in verse 5 of chapter 1 in Titus. And so the situation was you had an island, a very sizable island there with a lot of groups of Christians, but not a lot of well-organized functioning churches. And so Titus was tasked by the apostle as his representative to set up these churches and keep, get them going and running uh, properly, kind of like half-formed corporations. They needed to get their boards in order and their finances in order and, and all of that. These, in this case, for the church, they, they don't really, not really a business model. Uh, a church model, however, is that they need to have elders or pastors who are teachers and lead them and guide them, and they need to have deacons in the churches, and they need to have uh, the ministries of a church, which include worship and instruction in the Bible, fellowship together, evangelism, carry out the ordinances, baptism, and the Lord's table. Those basic functions of the church need to be carried out on a regular basis. And so uh, that's all nice and good, but then there was a problem. There was a bunch of other stuff going on on the island, just like there is today in our society. You know, we don't teach in a vacuum. It would be nice if there was no other false doctrine out there, but there is all over the place false teaching. And uh, it's being preached and taught online and television and in the media, news, uh, academia, all over the place. And so we face a situation like what Titus faced on the island of Crete. There were false teachers and there were people who were clamoring for that teaching and they wanted it. And Titus is set there in the midst of that and say, no, you have to teach so that they understand that those things are not right uh, what they are teaching in the schools, say, uh, or uh, in the churches, so-called, that aren't following the Bible, or in the news media, or in the you know, sitcoms and stuff like that on TV, in the trash that you find in uh, media today that is teaching immorality and all of that sort of thing. So he, he says to Titus, look, you have to deal with these people who are idle talkers and deceivers, those who hold the false teaching, uh, and then you must uh, teach the people there not to be lazy, not to be liars, not to be evil, and so on. And then he, he goes on to say, okay, when you, when you gather a, people, a bunch of people together in the church, people who have made some, hopefully, profession of faith in Jesus, that's what a church really is, the people who believe in Jesus Christ, Uh, gathered together to worship and fellowship and so on. When you've done that, chapter 2 then says, here's what I want you to do, and I want you to teach this to the uh, other teachers, that they will propagate this to those in the church. I want you to teach the older men 
the older women, the younger women, the younger men, and the servants how to live as Christians in this godless place uh, where you live. And so he lays that out in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We began that section last time. We're on part 2 today. We'll be treating verses 6 through 10 specifically, but I'd like to read the whole portion for you to remind you. I think it's been a couple of weeks since we've been here. Verse 1 of chapter 2, But as for you, so contrasting Titus to what he's hearing out in the society, look, you don't teach like that. You don't teach that stuff. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound teaching or sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and in patience. These characteristics should mark you if you're an older gentleman. And if you're a younger man, then they should increasingly mark your conduct as you move into older adulthood. Verse 3, the older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women. There we turn now to that, the third group, the young women, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, to be chaste, to be homemakers, to be good, to be obedient to their own husbands. Here's why, that the word of the Lord or word of God may not be blasphemed. Verse 6, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. And then the last group, the fifth group here, bond servants. Exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. These are the... If, if you're sitting there today asking, okay, I'm, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a missionary, I'm, uh, I'm just a guy or I'm just a girl... How do I do what God wants me to do? What do I do? Well, you can start here with these instructions. If you are an older man, then you need to follow these kinds of uh, commands, these kinds of instructions, these kinds of directions. If you're an older woman, the same way, he says, likewise, reverent, and, and so on. If you're a young woman, you make it your aim to be like it's described here and you know that you will be living according to the will of God for your life. Okay, That is what the will of God is for you. Many people look for the will of God, you know, like under every rock or in every message that they, or every conversation or something like that. What you need to do is look for the will of God in the word of God, and you will find what you need. It is perfectly uh, acceptable. It is perfectly pleasing to God if you do really not much else than these things. Simple Christian virtues. If you're a young woman and you're getting all this input from the world, you know, you've got to go into STEM. You've got to go to college. You've got to get feminist studies over there. You've got to make a career for yourself. You've got... Look, stop, put it aside for a moment and ask, what does God want me to do? 
He wants you to be, verse 5, right? well, verse 4, to, to love your husbands, to love your children. If you're not married yet, you're going to hopefully get there, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Those things are what God's will is for you. Older men, older women, same kind of thing. You just look at those texts back there and you see that. It's simple. It's not hard. God has made it, you know, God knows we're, we need it to be boiled down to the simple and obey it. Read it and obey it, yes. And, and that's uh, when you, you know, you might not understand that. If you're not a Christian, it's going to be impossible for you to understand. You think, wow, these Christians are really strange. You know, they don't want us to, uh, I mean, they don't demand us to go to college or, no, we, we say this is what God's demand is. Young men, now we turn to young men because we didn't get to them last time. We say, okay, if you're a young man, what does God want you to do? He has one thing for you to do. He doesn't have a list. The young ladies can handle a list of six or seven things. The young men, they got to stitch a few more brain you know, cells together before they get all this. I'm just joking, okay, now. Because somebody's going to say, well, why did he say six things to the, or seven to the young women and only one thing to the young men? Is that all they need? Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. Now, the young men, like the other age-based categories in the section, does not have a, a crisp boundary in its definition. It's even less specific than for the young women. Because for the younger woman, there's the mention of husband and children, and that, so she's a young married woman. And, of course, young teenagers are coming up to that point in their lives and will be preparing for that kind of life. But I might suggest young men are from early teenage years up to their 20s, perhaps early 30s, parallel to the case of the young women. Given that lifespans were shorter then, 40s and up would not qualify somebody as young. Somebody in their 30s to 40s or higher would be or should be quite mature and level-headed, they would, like the young women, typically be married and have children. I know you don't like to hear that. In fact, our dear sister in the back wanted to make a case that, you know, if you're in your 40s, you're still young. I like that. You know, I can, I can resonate with that. But, uh, you know, at some point, a guy like in your 40s has to realize you are in the prime adult years of your life and you, are, you have to carry the load. You are, you are the backbone and leadership of society when you're in that age group. You, know, you're, you're not, you can't just, well, you know, his brain isn't fully developed yet. He's not quite 25 years old and all that sort of stuff. No, look, enough of the excuses. You've got to live for God. You've got to be a level-headed, here, sober-minded for the young men uh, uh, person. Only a single instruction here for the young men. Obviously, however, they're to be sober-minded on their way to being what? An older man, sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith and love and patience. You're getting there. You're going there. All else being equal, you're going to live hopefully a longer time. You're going to have all those things on your plate. So you are sober-minded. This is a relatively uncommon word in the New Testament, but it's similar to the word in, um, in, of sober in verse number 2. Very similar. Now, this is far more than being sober vis-a-vis alcohol. That's a given. People want to talk about, what about alcohol? Well, look, the baseline, 
Christians are not allowed to be drunk. Okay? It's not even a thing to, to, to vote on or to consider. Okay? But this is far more than just being sober with regard to alcohol. Remember um, the demon-possessed man who went about in the tombs and he wasn't wearing any clothes and he was just insane? Uh, when he was healed, what happened to him? He was clothed and in his right mind. He was back to being level-headed again instead of being crazed. Okay, that's Mark 5 and Luke 8. Young men, in other words, should not be like the demon-possessed man running all over the place doing insane things. All Christians are supposed to have this kind of sound-minded judgment. It says so with this very word in Romans chapter 12. Look at 12.3. Uh, I say to, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now, the Apostle Paul adds another illustration of this. He says to the Corinthians in kind of a passage that may get you a little confused, but what he's basically saying is, look, if you regard us as nuts or if you regard us as sane, we're doing all of this for the sake of the gospel. You know, the Corinthians didn't have a really high view of the Apostle Paul, all of them. Some of them did, I'm sure, but not all of them did. And so Paul is saying, look, however you regard us, you've got to regard our message, the message of the gospel, as uh, for the sake of God and Christ to you Corinthians. And then Peter adds, we must all be of sober mind, given that the end of the age is near. Now, a lot of people talk about this today, especially the kind of, kind of remnants of the uh, you know the very the the folks that are that were very much focused on uh, prophecy, dispensational school of thought, and all that prophecy, and they're looking at the signs of the times and the end times and all. That. Well, it seems like we're getting close. I mean, the Lord's got to return pretty soon here, right? They say, and uh, I don't deny that whatsoever. Um, but the point is not to be looking at set dates or you know, uh, whatever, it's to say, I need to be sober-minded in light of the nature of the times in which I live. So much more today, folks. You can't just bop through life and just not have, not, not be paying attention. You've got to be paying attention. You have got to live godly in Christ Jesus and have a sober mind, be full of prayer, because the end of the ages is going to fall on our heads here pretty soon. The Christian young man, by this text, is called by God to be, can I put it in a few colloquial terms today, a no-nonsense young man. No-nonsense, sober, level-headed. He's to be rational, reasonable. You know, young man, why did you do that? Well, I don't really know. No, you better know. You better have a reason for what you do. Rationality, reasonableness. You should be clear-headed. You should be temperate, moderate. You should be restrained. To be a sober-minded young man is not to be addicted to anything, to substances, to entertainment, to technology, to games, to pornography, addiction to none of that. 
He's not to be lazy. He's not to act wildly like the world, uh, like the young man who goes out on the town or who gets into trouble. He's to be a young man who honors his parents, honors authority, learns the discipline of hard work, the value of money, self-restraint, education, and eschews laziness. That's the sober-minded young man. That is an expansion of what this text says, to be sober-minded, from other texts of Scripture. That is what our young people should be like. Our young married men, our young men that are coming up through the teenage years to look like a, a, a young man, to be like a young man, that's what we should be all about. And the young man Titus, look at verse number seven, should be like that as well. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. Okay? If you're going to be qualified to train others to follow Christ, then you better be following him yourself, right? The pastor to be an example, verses 7 and 8, and we see the example here, which really, if you will, expands on the instruction to the young men. The young men are to be sober-minded. That's a single instruction, we said. But, Titus, you're to be an example to these young men as well. And you're to show them integrity and doctrine and reverence and incorruptibility and sound speech. And so these add to the qualifications, if you will, or requirements for a young person that cannot be condemned, uh, that somebody who is an opponent may be ashamed and all of those things. So a pattern of good works needs to be evident in the minister's life. Uh, the example should be consistent. Outsiders should not have a reason to based on the, on the pastor or minister's works, or on Titus in this case, should not have a reason to doubt that the pastor really is a man of God. My heart is poked, hurt, when I hear of you know, pastors who go out and act worldly with the guys, or they want to go to the bar and hang out, and, and, and just, yeah, that's, just what, that's what Jesus did. You know, he hung out with sinners. Um, there should be no way that a pastor looks like the world. The world. He's a, pa- a pattern, a model, an example. His pattern is important. Other people who may be perplexed about what to do with their lives, other young people, should be able to say, well, I don't know exactly what to do, but I'm going to do what he does, the guy that I see in the pulpit. I'm going to do that. And I'm going to follow the Bible here. And then I know I'll be doing the will of God, even if I don't know what job to take, what college to go to, what girl to marry, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to do the will of God because I know what that is. Timothy, or Titus, rather, is to show integrity and doctrine. It's to be incorruptible, his teaching. It's free from corruption. That's a quality of teaching where the pastor is not propagating error. His doctrine is pure, it's sound. It's accurate, it's not deceptive, it's not partial. I was just listening to a podcast earlier, and the, num- the stuff that Christian churches teach today is appalling, appalling. You know, they're teaching that uh, you can be a, a gay Christian. No, you can't. First Corinthians chapter 6, 9, and 10 is very clear. People who persist in that lifestyle, don't repent of it, will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
It's just plain, look, not angry on my part. I'm not hateful. Folks who have been, who have been taught into that lifestyle have been victimized by false teachers who have told them it's okay. And you can be a Christian and you can be baptized if you're in that lifestyle. And it's all wrong. It's false. It's Matthew chapter 7, which teaches beware of, of uh, those false teachers. Uh, Paul, you know, there's going to arise some from among you, not necessarily from among this church, but among the church, you know, Christendom widely, who are going to rise up and they're going to teach perverse things. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. And you're only going to find, if you follow them, you're only going to find out that they're a wolf after they've got your neck in their mouth, and it's too late. Appalling kinds of things. Another corruption of teaching happens when it's two-faced. Uh, when I mean, what I mean by that is a pastor who holds to sound doctrine in one context, but then when he gets with a bunch of other people, he kind of softens his stance and doesn't really believe that stuff anymore. He's showing what he really believes. Um, I heard of an organization that crafts uh, uh, notes, teaching notes for pastors. They're kind of a research organization. We'll make notes for you for, uh, you know, a pre-tribulational sermon or a post-tribulational sermon. We'll make notes for you for this or for that, alternative viewpoints, you know, because we've got all the researchers, all the MDivs and all the PhDs that know how to do that. And we'll craft the sermon for your audience, for you. That's, that's not integrity in teaching. That's political. He's also to be reverent. He's Titus uh, in the pastors to be a, a serious person, not a lightweight, not a joker, not undignified. He's a cut above ordinary. He's holy, separated from the world. He's also to be incorruptible in his teaching. He's supposed to have sound speech that is above condemnation. Now, of course, you know if I say, look, if you... Uh, violate this law of God or this principle of the New Testament, you're living in sin. If somebody gets offended at that, they're going uh, to try to condemn me based on my speech. But that's not condemnable speech. You know the difference, right? It's, it's not that, uh, you know, what it is is it's not, you know, you're not mean, you're not uh, pugilistic, you're not unreasonable as a pastor or as a young man. Um, and hopefully the church supports their pastors when they come under fire from the world for the world condemning them for calling sin, sin. Because sin is sin. The result of all this is given at the end of verse number 8, that the opponent would be ashamed because there's nothing evil to say of you. Now, today this almost seems impossible to, to think about or conjure up in your mind because the voices against Christianity are so shrill, so loud, so uh, flamboyant, so oppositional, so harsh, that it's, it's hard for you to kind of back up a second and put yourself into a position where, how could somebody be like this? Well, think of, an, think of a, a, a guy, not a Christian, but he's an older guy, he's kind of laid back, he's just... He's not all into everybody's business and, and all of that, and, and he listens to what you say, okay? He has no connection with the things of God, 
uh, and if you teach the Bible, maybe he has some little connection with uh, you know, the history of the Christian church, and he's, you know, he's grown up in a nation where Christianity has been taught. What I'm, getting, what I'm trying to do is don't think of the most unreasonable person that you can and say, I've got to accommodate what I say so that they will have nothing evil to say about me. No, that most shrill, uh, you know, young uh, punk, if you will, is going to have something evil to say about you no matter what you say. But, you know, the, the kind of reasonable older gentleman or older woman who's listening and say, well, I mean, that, there's nothing wrong with that. That's what he believes. That's what the church believes. That's fine. That's what I'm talking about. When somebody would not be ashamed uh, because they, don't have, they have nothing evil to say about you. Uh, now, if that same older person, uh, you know, reasonable person, saw you as a pastor embezzling money from the church, then they would have something negative to say. And you know what? They're right. Yeah, it is an occasion to them. But, you know, the sad thing is when the people who don't believe are more right than the people who claim to believe. So the opponent should be ashamed because they have nothing evil to say of you. You know, picture a court situation. The judge says to the opposing side, what do you have to say about this man? Well, he, uh, he teaches that the Bible says, and the judge says, hmm, is that a criminal thing? It's just like in Corinth when they brought uh, the Christians before Gallio. And Gallio said, what's this? This is nothing. Get out of here. You know, don't bother us with this stuff. He was more of a reasonable fellow. Now, when they start, you know, beating Sosthenes and stuff, and I mean, I think he should have stepped in and beat the guys that were beating Sosthenes. But anyway, uh, you know, he was being reasonable about it, and he didn't have anything evil to say. The Christians are just teaching what their religious beliefs are, and that's fine. Finally, bond servants. And I have a, a little more of an extensive section on this. Um, well, let me just kind of dip our toes into it this morning. After we've looked at the young men and older men, younger women, older women, now we look at the bond servants. Not an age category now, but a social, socioeconomic status. What does Paul say there? Exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, being, having good fidelity, and so on. So whenever the Bible mentions servants, now listen, everybody's mind immediately goes to what? Chattel slavery, immediately. And they say, see, there's the Bible saying that we're supposed to allow slavery. It doesn't say that. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul tells the people there in Corinth in the church, because there were many who were slaves, if you can be made free, do it. Do it. Okay, but he never tells them to foment a revolt and start killing the slave owners because they're so wicked and evil. They may be wicked and evil, but there's, that's not the right answer to that uh, situation. So we always go to this idea of slavery. Uh, it was a different reality in Paul's day in Rome. Do you know how many people were slaves in the city of Rome? 30 to 40 percent. 
and many of them were, it's probably the church had a higher percentage of slaves than the society did. So you can imagine preaching to a church, servants of which, you know, 60, 70% of the people in the church, 80% are in that socioeconomic category, not the you know, millionaires and zillionaires, but they're down here. And Paul's telling them how to conduct themselves. What he's doing here, in short, is saying, look, there's a condition in society where they're servants, they're slaves. You can't do anything about that. This church can't do anything about that. We can't solve that problem on a nationwide scale. We're kind of stuck in it. How do we as Christians live in that less than ideal situation? Because we have to deal with it. So he expresses to them how to behave themselves. If I may point out what Paul is is doing here, presupposing, if you will, is that there is something more important than slavery or overturning all forms of bond service or, or, or even other things. There are things, there's something more important than that. Slavery, as important as it has been in history, is, listen, less important than the gospel. Why? Because a slave who is saved will be free for all eternity. But a slave or a master who is lost will be lost for all eternity. The problem of slavery will be solved eventually. Hopefully we solve it societally, you know, somewhat like we have tried to do here in the United States in the course of our history. But if it's not solved, and it's not in some places in the world, there are people who are slaves right now. Human trafficking victims, uh, victims of war in far-flung places of the earth. And if they become Christians, you have to say, okay, how do you conduct yourself? Uh, you know, abolition is not the first thing on your list. What is on your list? Being obedient to your master, be well-pleasing, not stealing, and so on and so forth. So we have to discern that for the church, it is very important that we preach the gospel. It is of utmost importance that we make disciples. It is not of utmost importance that we try to effect social change in the culture. Now, if you were stuck in slavery, there was a way to be Christian about it. What is that way? First of all, obey your master. Okay? You don't have much choice. I mean, you do, but if you don't do it, if you don't obey, what's, it's going to be a harder life, isn't it? Just do what you're told. Uh, to be well-pleasing in all things. What the master requires should be what the servant does, and diligently. Number three, not answering back. Don't be argumentative all the time. You know, don't be, just because you're in that situation, don't be a jerk. You want to demonstrate Christian behavior to your master and hopefully get him converted so that he'll be a Christian master. Maybe he'll let you go then too, who knows. Uh, number four, he says, do not pilfer. That means don't be a thief. Well, you say the master's stealing my labor, so I'm going to steal from him. Like I'm going to skim. I'm going to embezzle. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to be lazy when he's not around because he doesn't deserve my labor. He is a rotten scoundrel. Wrong answer. Two wrongs don't make a right. Christians are not supposed to steal, period. Now, this is not the smash and grab kind of stealing, like looting, but it's pilfering. It's like holding back some for yourself or things like that. And then he says, good faithfulness in your work, good fidelity. Christians 
should be the best, well, today, let's say, although it's definitely not the same thing, employees are not the same as slaves, but let's just put it in our context. Employees, Christian employees, should be the most diligent, the most hardworking, the least lazy. They should rise to the level of their most their most ability. If they're given and agree to a task, they should finish it straight away. They should be trustworthy, hard workers. They should rise to the top of their profession as much as their, their inherent ability allows them to do. That's what good faithfulness means. Okay? Now, obviously, if you're working for a company that tells you to lie or they're doing immoral things, you've got to quit and go somewhere else, obviously. Okay? But if you're in a company making widgets, make the most best widgets you can make and sell them for the highest price. I mean, you know, whatever the market will bear, I guess. You know? um, but do your best work. Do your best work. Yeah, imagine Paul saying, look, if you're a slave, if you're a servant, if you're a Christian, disobey your master, be displeasing in all your conduct, talk back all the time, steal from your master, and don't be faithful in your work. Can you imagine Paul saying that? That's not Christian. That's preposterous. Christians in the plight of bond service and even slavery are to behave honorably toward God and man. They do not take out their rage against others even their masters. Instead, they trust God. They live honorably. They're the best they can be under the circumstances. They testify of their faith by their conduct in front of their master and their fellow slaves. And yes, they do what they can legally and ethically to achieve their freedom, but they don't cheat or steal or kill or do violence in order to do that. And why do we do all this, Christians? Three reasons. That the word of God be not blasphemed, that the opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say, and that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. You're to concern yourself with your conduct because two things. Number one, when you think about your relationship to God, it's not just that I conduct myself to uphold my reputation. It's the reputation of God's honor and glory that are at stake. Because when you act like a reprobate, people who say, well, that guy said he's a Christian, but he acts nothing to do with, I don't want anything to do with that. That's his religion? Forget it. You want to dress up the teaching of God nicely so that God will be honored. And secondly, the second direction in which this runs is not only toward God, but towards your fellow human beings. You want your life to make an impact on people. If we behave well and consistently in a loving fashion, we can have an impact on others around us. They may persist in denying Christ. But you know what? Let them deny Christ and let them see our lives exemplifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't let them see our churches be in upheaval, splitting all the time, uh, bad conduct in the, from Christians and so on. Our ethics must be superb for the honor of God and for the reaching of the lost. Our ethics must be superb. We must work at that. We must be diligent about that. We must correct when we fail. Our point here is not to be different just to be different. It's to be holy so that we honor God and that we reach the lost. That's what Paul is telling Titus to tell the churches, and we simply rehearse that message to you today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we've come to the end of the second chapter, and I pray, Lord, that our lives will be marked by these kinds of characteristics. Thank you to help us in your help for us to to be this way, to be 
older and younger men and women and servants who exemplify the work of the Spirit of God in us. We would not be bitter, griping, complaining all the time, but we'd be thankful. We would be faithful, hardworking. We'd be homemakers and reverent and sober-minded and all of those characteristics that are given to us here. Help by your Spirit, I pray. And if someone here doesn't know Christ yet, these things may be a bit of a mystery. I pray that today that you would work in their lives, help them to understand that you sent your Son to give Himself as a sacrifice and substitution because we are sinners and deserve death for our sin. And Lord, help these ones further to understand that you have promised that he who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved without a doubt and that once that transaction occurs, your sins are forgiven. You're given a new nature, a new spirit. You're able to live for God and with a new joy in your life. I pray that that will be the case. If anyone here does not yet know the Lord, they will soon. In Jesus' name, amen.